It's Friday, December the 3rd. I'm Andrew Pearce and this is The Andrew Pearce Show coming from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... It's Christmas. It must be time for mulled wine. Well, there are some really, really upmarket festive offerings. We're going to take you through them. New figures show the number of homeless people who died in England and Wales is down for the first time since 2014. But is this statistic really of any significance? Also, in France, school bullying is going to be made a criminal offence as early as next year. Is it time we did the same here in Britain? But first, bickering amongst government officials, ministers with mixed messages, is Christmas being cancelled, slowly but surely, all over again? Ministers have been accused of causing great confusion over the run-up to Christmas. One minister says it's not sensible to host hundreds of people. In other words, abandon big Christmas parties. Another warned against, her words, not mine, snogging under the mistletoe. And a member of the Joint Committee on Vaccinations has also said people should avoid Christmas parties. So is it effectively being cancelled? David Matthews is Professor of Virology at the University of Bristol and joins me now. Professor, you and I talked about this before and you said you thought Britain might be one of the first countries to get rid of this wretched pandemic. Is that still your view? Uh, I'm still hopeful we'll be in the front runner, yeah. Um... We really do have to wait and see what happens when uh, Omicron is uh, widespread in the community and does that lead to a big jump in uh, people being hospitalised, particularly what we're watching out for is people who've been double jabbed and are otherwise healthy. Uh, If they end up being put in hospital by this variant, then that would be very, very uh, difficult indeed. Uh, But I'm hopeful that that won't be the case. I think the biggest danger comes from people who are currently unjabbed uh, because the Omicron variant looks like it spreads faster. And if it spreads faster, then it means it will find the unjabbed sooner and quicker and put them in hospital faster. Uh, um, do you think the government, uh, I mean, apart from the fact we've got mixed messages coming out of various ministers, the Prime Minister is urging people to carry on with Christmas and have a good time. Ministers further down the food chain are saying the reverse. Uh, should people be cautious about going to social events in the run-up to Christmas, New Year, because we don't know yet how dangerous this new variant is going to be? I think people should be reasonably cautious. I mean, I think the question is more, are you going to an event where you're going to be mixing with a lot of people that you never normally meet? Um, So, you know, if you're having a small party with the team that you work with daily, well, you work with them daily. So if there's there's an issue there in that someone uh, catches um, the virus, they're likely to spread it amongst people at work anyway, aren't they? I think what you might want to avoid is a situation where, you know, a company or an organization lays on a huge do in a in a setting where lots and lots of people who would never normally mix with each other at work are now mixing with each other. So the question is more about mixing, really, I think, uh, than, uh, you know, if you have a small team and, and, you know, half a dozen of you go out for lunch together or something. What's your take thus far on uh, the new variant, Professor? I know we details are still sketchy and vague, but are you optimistic that um, the vaccines we've got, the vaccines being massively expanded with the booster jab being extended to all adults, uh, are you comf- pretty confident that will do the trick and see off this new variant? Yeah, I think I'm as confident as you can be, really, given the situation. Um, so far, with all the variants that have come out, the vaccines have held the line. Um, so, and, and at this stage, there's no reason to think they won't keep holding the line, particularly with the booster program uh, and, uh, you know, the rather spectacular effects that we're seeing from the booster program. Um, and I know it seems rather sort of 
dull and boring to some people, but the line is still vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Uh, and that is what will get us out of the pandemic before other countries. The more people are vaccinated, the more we, as I've said before, spend time talking to people who haven't had the vaccine so far and trying to understand their concerns and allay their fears and persuade them to get vaccinated as well. Because at this time, unfortunately, it's the unvaccinated that will bear the brunt of this new variant, I think. Indeed. And can I ask you just finally, what about you, Professor? Are you going to have, be going to an office party at the university? <laughs> well, actually, the, the, there was a large office, uh, there was a large kind of office party, if you like, get together that was planned, and that's been cancelled. Um, so we might, be, we might be having a small wheel just with the team that I work with, which, as I said earlier, makes more sense because, you know, I work with them anyway during the day. We enjoy it, whatever you do. That's David Matthews, Professor of, Viro- of Virology at the University of Bristol. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. In France, school bullying is going to be made a criminal offence as early as next year. The law will mean those who bully at school or university could be liable for fines of up to €150,000 or even potentially face jail. Martha Evans is director of the Anti-Bullying Alliance and joins me now. Martha, you must be greatly encouraged because I think this is one of the first major Western countries to do this. Well, it's great to see a spotlight on bullying, but we do find that actually um, bullying behaviour is multifaceted and, and involves a, a wider group behaviour. So we, are, we wouldn't want to see this happening in the UK. You wouldn't want school bullying to be made a criminal offence? Not a specific criminal offence. We do already have laws that are in place that um, can look at bullying that might um, amount to abuse, so physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. Um, so there are existing legal powers that would could intervene when that happens. But actually, what we'd much prefer to look at is how we can encourage schools to work better to tackle bullying and provide clear messages about um, how bullying behaviour is unacceptable. Because we do have the capacity to change children's behaviour with the right support and challenge. So what? How? So what? If if you were in charge here and you were able to talk to the, the head teachers or the education secretary, what would you be recommending is done uh, pretty quickly to try to um, alleviate bullying in schools? What we'd really like to see is training for school staff, particularly initial teacher training for school staff about what bullying is, how they can address bullying, and what they can do to um, to try and support children. Um, we don't have enough data and and school accountability. Um, when bullying does take place, so we'd like to see more of that. Um, And we know that what really works when trying to tackle bullying is whole school approaches, where the whole school is looked at um, and and, and supported to to make changes, um, because we know that bullying takes place very rarely between two individuals alone. It often involves a group behaviour. Um, when I was a child, bullying was either on the playground or in the classroom. Uh, I'm sure that still happens today, but a very important way bullying has changed is a lot of it now takes place on social media. That must be even more difficult for teachers, head teachers, edu- school staff to, to, to counter. Absolutely. It does. It, um, what we call it is it's another tool in the toolbox of the way that children can bully. And what makes it different is that it's 24-7. Um, it involves a degree of separation, so children don't always think about the impact of what they're saying online because they can't see you face-to-face. But interestingly, with online bullying, it very rarely starts online. It, always, it might, almost always starts face-to-face and then goes, on, goes online, in effect. Is it um, still, again, when, I just think back to my own school days, people who were bullied often didn't say anything about it because they were scared they'd be bullied 
even more. Uh, is that still is that still a problem, Martha? That children who are being bullied are reluctant to tell anybody about it? Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, it's something that we see a lot, and and often what happens is children aren't, don't want to talk to their parents about bullying, for example, because it's quite rare for a child to have been attacked and and to be verbally abused, and for them not to have said or done something that they might not really want you to find out about. So they might have sworn back, they might have done, said or done something that they really wouldn't want you to know about. So often. Children aren't always keen to come forward and talk about bullying. And so what we, what we recommend to parents in particular is to have those kind of open conversations with your child to say, look, I might not always agree with everything that you do, but if you're ever in trouble, come to me and we'll work it out together. Yeah. Um, and um, just, just finally on that, I was quite struck by what you said about the in, in initial teacher training. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that bullying isn't part of teacher training um, in the same way maths and, and English are part of the school curriculum. Absolutely, yeah. We we want to we push for it all the time, and we've got free online training on our website to try and get teachers to do to find out more about what bullying is. But with the fact that it isn't built into initial teacher training, is it does make life much more difficult. Indeed, it does. That's Martha Evans. She's director of the Anti Bullying Alliance, and France, as I say, is poised to bring in a law next year to make bullying in school a criminal offence. The Office for National Statistics has published its findings regarding the deaths of homeless people in England and Wales in 2020. They show the first fall in the number of estimated deaths since 2014. But is this figure significant at all? I'm going to talk now to Hilary Burkett, who's the head of research at Shelter, the charity which campaigns to end homelessness. Hilary, I wonder if these figures um, have been influenced in any way by the pandemic. Well, it's quite likely they have been influenced by the pandemic in in various ways. As you say, the um, estimated number of people who have um, sadly died while homeless has has decreased for the first time, although the Office of National Statistics themselves have said it's not a significant decrease. This is obviously based on an estimate that they have made based on the available um, data. Because of the pandemic, it may have decreased the accuracy of of that estimate, and they do believe it could still be an underestimate. So although it's uh, potentially good news that the number hasn't increased, particularly during the pandemic, I don't think we can necessarily hail this as a, as a decrease just, just yet. But I think it is important to recognise that, yes, it, um, I mean, this did take place during the pandemic itself. And um, the government, uh, particularly during the first lockdown, put in place um, significant measures to bring people off the street and out of unsafe yes, um, yeah. uh, hostels. So, so and we know that that has saved lives. We know that has um, has definitely saved lives, and that action needs to be needs to be continued really as we go into another difficult winter. And and the deaths, while they fell by eleven point six percent in twenty twenty, the estimated number six hundred and eighty eight. That's still a pretty high figure, isn't it? Oh, I mean, absolutely. We're talking about nearly two people every single day, and that is, I mean, really sobering. We shouldn't be in any way complacent about about this. You know, no one should be living their lives homeless, still less dying homeless. It is it is very, very concerning that we are still seeing such high numbers of people um, dying in this way. And quite a lot of them, uh, Hilary, I think two in five, uh, the deaths were related in some way to drugs or drug poisoning. Uh, yes, we, we know that um, people do die of substance misuse problems and as you say drugs and um, alcohol do contribute to it we know that um, when um, people are homeless it can take a real terrible toll on people's um, 
physical health, their mental health and their safety. So um, unfortunately, it kind of comes as no surprise to us that we do see these high numbers associated with, with drug and alcohol um, um, misuse. Is there any um, uh, theme as well, Hilary, about the age of the people who are dying or the sex? Are more men dying on the streets? Uh, and are they, are they getting younger, the people who are dying? Um, it is certainly the case that um, many more men are dying on, while homeless than, uh, than women, which reflects the, the profile of, um, of people who are homeless, particularly when we're talking about homelessness here. Um, the definitions that are used um, around this are people who are tend to be rough sleeping or using hostels, which does tend to be men. If we think about other forms of homelessness, people living in temporary accommodation and um, such like, we see much more um, women and families. So I mean, we, we shouldn't think that homelessness is just about um, just about men. And we do see, um, unfortunately, um, many women are homeless are on, the, on the streets as well. But it, it's definitely primarily uh, men who are dying. And also, I mean, people are dying so so young it is at about 30 years younger than the than the average average death and that's been um been sustained so i mean these are people who are dying exceptionally young in most most cases finally hillary christmas is coming up uh, uh the weather is predicted to get colder um does shelter try and endeavor to get everybody who's homeless uh, in in some form of hostel at least on christmas day so they maybe they can have some roast turkey well we have our national helpline, which is available 365 days a year, including on Christmas Day, to help anyone who is in a, a housing crisis and to help people who are facing um, homelessness on the street get that kind of practical help to make sure they're not on the on the streets over over Christmas. But of course, I mean, we you know we always need the public support to um, to continue to do that. So um, you know, we really appreciate um, everyone who is able to support us in that endeavour. That's Hilary Burke, who's Head of Research at Shelter, the charity which campaigns to end homelessness. Thanks for joining us. So it's that time of the podcast. I'm talking sport with the Deputy Sports Editor, Matt Gatwood. Now, I know this is going to be hard for you, Matt, because they are your team and they have been doing a bit better, but Arsenal thwarted in a pretty thrilling game with Manchester United. Yes, yes, thwarted indeed. Lost 3-2, but it was an absolute belter of a game, absolutely packed with, with, uh, with everything. Uh, one of those uh, great ding-dong games. Um, but the most remarkable thing probably was the opening goal, which uh, was this really bizarre freak goal. So what happened was there was a corner to Arsenal. The ball was swung into the box and Fred, the Manchester United midfielder, trod on the foot of the Manchester United goalkeeper, David De Gea. David De Gea then fell to the ground, rolling around as if he'd been shot, uh, rather pathetically, if I, if I may say so, the ball then came out to an Arsenal player on the edge of the box, Emile Smith-Rowe, who shot. And De Gea was still lying on the floor with his head on the floor, not even looking at the ball. And the ball sort of trickled into the corner. So then all the Manchester United players were complaining, saying, well, you know, you should have stopped the game. And Arsenal were going, well, we didn't know he was down injured because they hadn't really noticed that he'd been lying on the floor. Anyway, the referee was confused, didn't know what to do. He looked like immediately as the ball went in, he signalled, oh, no, I can't give that. But he hadn't blown his whistle. Then the VAR got involved and said, well, there's no reason we disallow the goal because David De Gea was effectively fouled by his own player. Um, Arsenal didn't do anything wrong and scored the goal. Uh, and so the goal stood. So it was, uh, lots of the, the pundits, referees that they get on these TV shows that cover these games, no one had really ever seen anything like it. So uh, a bizarre start. And then the game 
seesawed this way and that. Uh, Manchester United took the lead after the equaliser, then Manchester United scored again. And of course, it was that man, Ronaldo, who scored two of the goals, taking his total now, career total, to 801 goals, uh, which is just phenomenal. Obviously, that's a massive record. Uh, and in a thousand, uh, he played over a thousand games, they have 800 goals. So astonishing by him, uh, sort of a freak goal, but then a freak show from Ronaldo. And ultimately, uh, Man United won 3-2. Michael Carrick, who's been the uh, interim manager, then signed off, saying he was leaving the club. And Ralph Ramnick has taken over this morning. So uh, quite an incident-packed uh, 90 minutes plus, uh, plus the happenings afterwards. And you've said all that without even shedding the tear, Matt. Well, yes, I'm crying inside. Sure you are. And finally, Matt, the Mail have got another good story about the cricketer who cried foul, foul about racist at Yorkshire Cricket Club. Yeah, so as in Rafiq, um, interesting story that he um, had thousands of pounds uh, paid off by the Cricketers Players Union, the PCA. Uh, by then, they paid off his gambling debt. So he'd amassed quite a few thousand pounds of gambling debt. And the PCA stepped forward and helped him out with those. Now, he, as in Rafiq, was very, very critical of the PCA for the way they handled his complaints about racism at Yorkshire Cricket Club, who this morning, by the way, as also was uh, revealed by today's sports mail, have sacked 16 staff members. Uh, so he was very critical of, of the PCA and the way they, the way they looked after him. Uh, now, obviously, they're two separate things. He also was at pains during that tribunal uh, hearing to say that the PCA had been good with him in other areas without elaborating, but he was very critical of the PCA over the way they dealt with his racism complaints. Well, we can reveal the other areas where they were helpful to him was paying off his gambling debt. So that's not to option excuse what happened at Yorkshire, but just another interesting element to this story that keeps on unfolding. And as I say, yeah. Yorkshire this morning have sacked uh, Director of Cricket Martin Moxon, Head Coach Andrew Gale and 14 other staff members. So a complete clear out at the club. As a consequence of the race row. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Predicted, didn't we, that there would be um, uh, a night of the long knives. It seems like that's just happened. Great stuff, Matt. That's Matt Gatrud, who's the Deputy Sports Editor at the Daily Mail. And, of course, um, don't forget, get the mail tomorrow. Sports pages will be packed with news and views. So, mulled wine, staple of ski resorts, staple of Christmas markets. I think we saw the Prime Minister supping some only the other day. You can make your own. I used to make my own, actually. But the results can be disappointing, as particularly mine was. But now, mulled wine is being taken more up market. You can even get some costing as much as £27 a bottle. Julia Crouch, food and drink expert, has sampled some of them uh, in the mail today. And she's here to tell us about the best and the rest. Uh, Julia, are you a mulled wine fan in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I definitely am. I think it's just such a Christmassy drink, gets everybody feeling festive. Um, But I definitely think a lot of them can be sickly sweet, and that does put some people off. So I'm really excited this year that there's starting to be some really interesting mulled wines out there, really delicate, really sophisticated, bringing some kind of different flavours, but still super Christmassy. So I think that's really fun. What's interesting, um, so Dalesford mulled wine, now that's £12.50. That's a bottle, presumably. Um, that's Boris John- one of Boris Johnson's favourite shops. It's uber posh. Um, what did you mm. make of that? You gave it four out of five. Yeah, do you know what? I absolutely loved that one. It was... It was- 
sweet, but not in a sickly way, just in a very, very fruity way, very blackcurranty, blueberry-ish, kind of more mellow with lots of hints of orange coming through. It was really, really delicious. That was one of my favorite ones. Um, some of them were kind of more acidic or almost more savory, but for someone who's got a sweet tooth, that's really lovely. It almost has like a freshness to it, right. which I just adored. And do you do you do you, you do you heat it up when you drink it, Julia? Or... Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, you do. So it's super easy. You just put it in a pan, yeah. um, get it bubbling away nicely. Obviously, you don't want it boiling because you obviously don't want to boil off any of the alcohol. Um, but not. you, yeah, it's it's super easy. Now, now Fortnum and Mason mold cider with English cassis, only seven pounds mm-hmm. fifty a bottle, which I thought was a bargain. And you really mm-hmm. like that one too. I absolutely loved that one. Honestly, it was delicious. It was it was like biting into a fresh apple. It was so lovely. There's hints of cinnamon in there. There's ginger. It's just a really, really delicious drink. And for anybody who doesn't like wine particularly, although I don't know who those people are, yeah. then this cider is, is an excellent option. Um, just so, so yummy, like dangerously drinkable. You could just keep going on that for, for a long time. And you gave that five out of five. Yeah, loved it. Honestly, great. Now, this is the expensive one. Abel Forth's Winter Mould Cup Liqueur, uh, £27.70 for a bottle. So that's going to have to be good at that price. Yeah. Do you know what? This one is slightly different to the rest, um, which I didn't realise initially. What it is, is you add it to your red wine. So it's kind of like having a spice bag um, that you make your mould wine with, but it's like a liqueur. Right. So you get... You get a bottle of red wine. It can be as cheap as you like. We literally use a five-pound bottle, not expensive at all. And then you add some of this and you add some sugar and it makes the most wonderful mulled wine. It's obviously a bit more faffy than the rest of them because you have to make it yourself. But it was so delicious. When you smell it, the aroma is almost like a spiced rum. There's vanilla in there. Um, there's cinnamon, cloves, port. Super boozy, super delicious. Obviously, it's £27, so that's quite a lot of money. But because you add it in um, bit by bit, it actually it's going to last you longer than a bottle of pre-made stuff. So that's really, really lovely as well. And finally, another posh one, Harvey Nichols. Um, now, their mulled wine £16.50, so that's pretty pricey too. You weren't so wild on that one. No. So it was quite strange compared to the others. It was very, very sharp, um, almost a bit medicinal tasting. My friend really was not a fan. Um, she said that it felt like it was burning the inside of her nose when oh, she smelt yeah. it and burning the back of her throat. So it was it was quite a punchy flavour. Um, and a little bit bitter. So it's not really one for people who like a traditional mulled wine. Um, and, yeah, I wouldn't really say it's it's worth the money. Um, you expect if you're spending £16.50 on a mulled wine that mm. it's going to be really delicious. But, yeah, people weren't a fan of that. I didn't, I didn't hate it, but I'm not going to be buying it again. Very interesting. And just finally, Julie, do you make your own or do you always buy at Christmas? Um, do you know what? Last year, I got a pre-made one as well. Um, right. Actually, the shop cuvee one that I mentioned in my yeah, piece. Yeah, Because it's just so much easier. It's really, really delicious. Um, I have made it before in the past, but sometimes you just can't be bothered weighing out the sugar and getting all the right spices. And it can, it can be actually quite hard getting the, the right balance of flavours. So I think for ease and to get 
in the Christmas spirit very quickly, just get, get one of these. Sounds a great idea. Julia Crouch, food and drink expert. I have to say, it's got me. I'm just going to have to go and buy one of those, Julia, so I can get in the Christmas spirit. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much. Lovely to talk to you. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Good night.